Good morning. Welcome to Bethel Mennonite Church. Thank you for being here. We are very happy to have you here. If you are willing and able, would you please stand and uh, sing this song with us? this week through the book of Daniel, and even King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan king, came to the place where he said, there is no God like Jehovah. Uh, There is no God like the real uh, God, and he gave praise. And so it's right 
that we who know the real God uh, would give praise this morning as well. Well, welcome to Bethel. I am glad that you are here today. A few announcements for this morning. Uh, We've been saying over the last couple weeks that we like to pray for our students here at Bethel. And so this morning, you can go now and get matched up with with a student that you can pray for uh, for the next year. So out in the foyer, uh, parents have left names of their children, their ages, what school they're in, so on and so forth. And you can go and pick one of those and begin praying for that student over the next year. Uh, You can do as little or as much. If you just want to pray, that's fine. If you want to interact with that student, uh, you can get in touch with their parents and work out those kinds of details uh, as well. well. Secondly, uh, on October the 11th, we are going to have a fundraiser lunch here after church uh, for Lonnie Miller and his family. Many of you know that Lonnie was involved in an accident uh, a couple months ago now and has really had a financial strain uh, put on their family. And so we want to do something to help them. And so on October 11th, uh, we're going to have a fundraiser after church that morning. But here's the thing. You need to let us know if you're coming. Uh, So by next Sunday, October the 4th, you need to RSVP to Mark Peliquin so that he has enough food for you, okay? Uh, So make sure that you let us know that you're going to be here uh, so that we can have food ready. If you can't stay that day and you still want to contribute uh, toward that fundraiser, uh, you can do that as well. Just get in touch with Mark or in touch with our office and we can help you out with that. Lastly, uh, we are heading into what's called the 40 Days for Life. Uh, For those of you that aren't aware, here in Sarasota, we do have an abortion clinic uh, that's downtown. They uh, perform abortions every Tuesday. And so for 40 days, uh, this organization, 40 Days for Life, organizes prayer that happens outside on the sidewalk in front of the Planned Planned Parenthood Pregnancy or Center downtown. So on October the 12th, that's on a Monday, um, that is the day that Bethel has signed up to provide volunteers that will go down and pray in front of the Planned Parenthood Center. So I went last year. Uh, it's not intimidating. It's not, it's not hard. It's not scary. Uh, you just simply stand out on the sidewalk and you pray. And you can sign up for an hour. You can sign up for longer if you want. Uh, but we would love to have uh, Bethel representatives there uh, for that time slot. I think it goes from 9 in the morning until uh, sometime in, in the afternoon. That's on October the 12th. There's a sign-up sheet for that. It'll either be out in the foyer or here on the bulletin board for you to sign up for a time slot, or you can talk to Pastor Jason and he can help you. Leading up to that, um, if you want something to be praying for uh, from your home, uh, yesterday we did a prayer march and a prayer walk and a time here at the church, and we have printed off 40 days of prayer leading up to the election. Those are out. There's paper copies of that out in the foyer. If you want something where you can just pray through for the next 40 days and include in that then a prayer for the unborn and a prayer for their mothers, uh, you can take some of those papers with you and have a guide to help you uh, pray. I would really, I really hope to see a number of you there. We're going to show a little video now about uh, 40 Days for Life, and when that's uh, over, then we'll join together in singing again. Uh, Let me pray. Father God, thank you uh, for this morning, for allowing us to be here, and for uh, allowing us to know you so that we can acknowledge that you are 
uh, Jehovah, you are the one and true living God. I pray that our hearts would be motivated toward prayer and for reaching out to those, especially those uh, mothers who are contemplating whether they should carry a child or not, that we would love her, we would love her child uh, during and after that pregnancy and that we could just come along and be a support uh, for lives that you've created in your image. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here's the video. I think the hardest part in particular is that with this clinic that I have the 40 Days campaign at is that it's not like you can really talk to the the young women coming in and coming out. The pivotal moment in my decision to choose life was when I was sitting on that table and the 40 Days for Life volunteers were outside praying for me. Really, it's, it's, that, it's that trusting in Jesus and it's that encouragement that I know comes from him that he's, you know, just saying, you know, simply be faithful. Just be faithful. Um, and and just, just trusting him that even when we don't always see the results, that he holds those people much more closely. He loves those people in a way that I never can, even though I love them, I can't comprehend how much he loves them. God got a hold of my head and my heart and presented a Bible verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, and I realized that I could not do it. And so it's it's really, even though it's hard, and it is, it's, it, it's an even more, I would say, um, just of a deeper dependence on God, trusting Him that He is holding these people, that He knows, you know, truly what He's doing in their hearts and what He's doing in their lives and the stories that He's knitting together for them. 40 Days for Life made an impact on my decision because without those prayers, I would have never been able to walk out of that clinic.
love is Like radiant diamonds Bursting inside us We cannot contain Love will Surely Wildfires singing your name, and God of mercy, sweet love of mine, and I have surrendered to your design. May this offering stretch across. The skies in these hallelujahs be
Father God, you are truly holy. Uh, you are wonderful, and though now our eyes can't see you, uh, one day our faith will no longer be, uh, we'll, ha- we'll have sight to see. It won't be by faith. We'll, we'll actually be able to be with you and to enjoy you forever. And so by faith we believe now and we sing your praises uh, to the one who was, uh, to the one who is, and the one who will always be. I thank you, God, for reigning on high and thank you for revealing yourself to us in a way um, that not only saved us, uh, but now enables us to live with you in right relationship. And so I pray this morning you would help us to learn even more uh, what that looks like as we study your word to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be eventually reading verses 5 to 9 from Ephesians 6. So this morning, uh, we are going to finish unpacking what Paul began all the way back in Ephesians 5 in verse 21 uh, when he said, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is a Christian virtue that shows up in all kinds of spheres in our, our lives. And so Paul has been laying out for us a number of those spheres. The first one that he laid out for us was in the marriage relationship Uh, There is a principle of submission and a principle of authority. And our marriage is, of course, our closest earthly relationship. And in that relationship, wives are called to submit to their husbands as husbands are called to lead with a self-sacrificial, giving kind of love uh, toward their wives. That was the first area that Paul talked about. And then Paul uh, moved his attention to parents and children. And so we looked at the last couple times and uh, Jesus, uh, God calls children to submit to their parents as authority figures. And then he calls parents to live out that authority in ways that instruct and discipline their children in the Lord, bringing them up in the Lord. And so we see marriage relationships fleshing out that submitting principle. We see parenting children relationships. And now uh, Paul is going to turn his attention to the third area of life, and it's probably an area of life where you and I, besides our family, uh, spend the bulk of our time during the week. And it's at work, right? Uh, we work a lot of hours during the week. And Paul says, this principle applies even there. Some of you in this room this morning are self-employed. So maybe you have employees or maybe you don't have employees, but you're the boss. Uh, you have your own business. Uh, there are others in this room, uh, maybe the, the bulk of the people in this room, that go to work for someone else. You go and you clock in, you clock out, you get a paycheck from that person. Uh, so you are an employee. There's a number of, of people in this room who are students. And while we might not say that they're working for a paycheck, they are working at school in order to eventually uh, be able to earn a paycheck, right? So that is their work. Uh, to go to school and, and, to, and to study well. And then we have some people in this room that are not employed outside of the home, but find that their full-time work is caring for the home and the children 
that God has given to them. And we sometimes refer to them as homemakers, um, but really they are the administrators of a well-oiled machine uh, called the home. And, and they keep all of that uh, running and organized. And so all of us find our place in there somewhere in this idea of work as a sphere of life. And that is a good thing. Work is a good thing because work was created by God, popular uh, against all popular opinion. Uh, way back in Genesis chapter 2, we can see this verse that, that God says. It says, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden, and what? He told him to work it, right? He said, you work it and you keep it. Okay, this is pre-fall. This is before Adam and Eve's sin. Even earlier than that, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and do what? Subdue it, right? That is to exercise authority over the earthly resources that I've put in place, care for it, subdue it, produce from it, use it, right? We are commanded to work. It's a, a godly thing. So what happened? What, what went wrong? Why, why do some of us dread work today? Well, uh, the fall of man happened. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we read this curse of God. It says, to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So here is something, here's this concept of work that Adam and Eve were supposed to enjoy and it brought them fulfillment and, and it, it brought, uh, it produced for them. Now all of a sudden because of the fall, that work has become painful and it's become hard and thorns and thistles take over uh, their means of production. They have to now sweat in order to produce something that they eat. It wasn't fun anymore. And, and, and now they are tempted toward laziness. They're tempted to not want to go to work or to do the bare minimum to, to kind of get by. And, and for those that uh, owned businesses, uh, there became this temptation to misuse people under them in order to produce more so they don't have to work quite as hard. Um, all of those temptations now that Adam and Eve faced because of the fall got handed down to me and you. And we have a temptation toward laziness or we have a, a temptation toward misusing work. Practically, that means that for some of you, uh, when the alarm clock goes off in the morning, your old nature comes out and you just sort of scream, no, right? And you hit the snooze 40 to, uh, 47 times. We have one of those in our house, and every 10 minutes, that the alarm goes off again, right? We have this temptation toward not wanting to get up and, and go to work anymore. We don't want to get started anymore. And so Paul now is coming along in Ephesians chapter 6, and he says, Look, you have a new nature. 
You have a nature that's been given to you by Christ and it demands something different of you. Because you are a Christian, Paul says, you are a Jesus follower, you need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit and understand that work is good and that work done in the right way with the right attitude actually brings glory to God. And so he writes this text for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 5 and 9. I'm actually hopeful that after we get done with this morning, uh, tomorrow morning you are going to jump out of bed and you're going to clap your hands and you're going to say, yes, I get to go to work. That's my goal. All right, we'll see. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, With a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. All right, there's our marching orders. So what does this mean? Well, let's unpack these verses together. And I think even before maybe uh, we look at how this applies today, um, I want you to notice that very first word in in verse 5. In my Bible, it's the word bondservant. If you would look that up in the Greek, it's the word doulos, which actually is translated in other parts of the New Testament as either slave or servant, or in this case, as bond servant. Uh, The idea of slave and slavery, I don't think anyone should ever try to deny that slavery existed in the Old and in the New Testaments. It was never condoned um, by God, but it was regulated uh, by the law of God. It is worth noting, however, that the slavery that existed in the Old Testament and in the New Testament uh, looked drastically different uh, than the type of slavery that occurred centuries later here in the United States. Slavery in the Bible should never be romanticized, uh, but it was dissimilar uh, to what we saw in, in the U.S. It's interesting to me that when Paul writes... Paul never advocates in his writings uh, for the immediate, outright uh, emancipation of the slaves. Paul knows that if he were to do that, it would create uh, societal chaos. It would sort of turn everything on his head, and it would really be coming uh, from external pressure from him. And so Paul says uh, implicitly in his writings, If slavery is going to end, it's going to come from the inside. And so he begins preaching love. He begins preaching love uh, from the slave to the master. 
he begins preaching love from the master to the slave. And as the love of God begins to transform the hearts of both, it melts the cruelty of, uh, of the master into kindness. And it converts dishonest and lazy slaves into willing servants. It's, it's the beauty of the gospel that really transforms from the inside out. One commentator said it like this. The truth of the gospel will do far more to solve social questions than any number of bayonets. And it actually becomes Christianity that eventually brings about the end of slavery. Because when you begin reading Paul's writings and you see what he writes to Philemon, which is the first step as you see the end of slavery, all the way through Christianity, through the ages, up until and through uh, uh, Wilberforce, William Wilberforce in the late 1800s, the abolition of slavery eventually comes because the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, transforms hearts from the inside out. It was the right understanding of Scripture that ended all ownership of fellow human beings. Human beings are created in the image of God. Uh, And it is never right that they would suffer under the oppression of being owned by someone else, either in the form of uh, chattel slavery like we see here or even human trafficking like you hear today. Uh, Those are both abominations in, in the sight of God and break his heart. And so it is a right understanding of Scripture that actually brings about uh, that transformation and change. So Paul here begins that change by speaking to the hearts of both the slave as well as the master, the bondservant as well as the boss, the the employee, if you will, as well as the employer. And Paul is likely speaking to uh, household slaves here. He's, He's speaking to Christians. We know that. So he's speaking to Christian slaves. He's speaking to Christian masters. They're showing up in the church at the same time. So these slaves that he's addressing are probably the household slaves, and they actually were entrusted with high responsibility. They would run the finances of households. They would raise the children. They would educate the children. They would act as represent, uh, representatives of their master. And so he, he's speaking to these. But the principles that we can draw from this passage apply to you and I today. Whether you're a master, you own a business, or you're the, you're the boss, you're the employer, or whether you're the slave, that is, you're the employee, you're the, you're the grunt, maybe, that comes along. The, these principles apply to all of us in, in the workplace. And so, like I said, uh, any of us can take these principles, apply them to heart, and tomorrow morning, uh, jump out of bed uh, begging to go to work uh, to put these into, into practice, okay? Paul's instructions are crystal clear. I don't think we can mistake them. He always writes first to the one who's called to submit, and then he writes to the one with authority. That's been his pattern all the way through, end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, and that is his pattern here. And so he's going to speak to the bondservant first, uh, to the employee first. And his instructions are easy to follow because he really gives three methods for obedience, or I could might say three mindsets for obedience, and then he gives two motivations for why that should happen. So three methods 
and then two motivations. So if you're taking notes of this morning, the three methods that he gives to an employee, and if you're an employee here this morning or if you're a student under the instruction of an authority figure, here are the three methods. You are to obey that one in authority reverentially, that means with reverence, reverentially. You are to obey with sincerity and you are to obey with consistency. Why would you do that? Uh, well, the motivations that he talks about, and we'll unpack these, as he said, there's an intrinsic motivation intrinsically, and he says there is an expectation of what's to come. So we, we obey expectantly, okay? So I'll go through all of those together with you so that you understand them in order. So Paul says first, if you look at the verse again, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean uh, when your boss walks into the room that you just start shaking in terror uh, or that your knees start clattering together uh, backward. No, what he's talking about there is a reverential submission. You are submitting out of reverence, out of respect, out of honor, out of awe, out of attention for that employer, that boss, uh, and you should have a deep and honest respect for that person. If you are an employee, you may or may not agree with every decision that your employer makes. In fact, you may think he's kind of dumb. I don't know. But as long as he's not commanding you to sin, your role is to carry out his instructions to you. As long as he is not asking you to violate your conscience or the law of God, your role as his or her employee is to obey reverentially. You are called to submit to the instructions of your boss. You should carry out their instructions with honor and you should do that with prompt attention. Along with that, Paul says, uh, you should obey with sincerity as you would Christ. Here's the deal. When you are obeying your earthly boss, that's, that's the person you see. You see a man or a woman and you're obeying them. Ultimately, who are you working for? Ultimately, you're working for Jesus Christ. That's who you're really working for. There's a, a parallel passage in Colossians, where Paul states it just explicitly, in Colossians 3 and verse 24, he says, you are serving the Lord Christ. You're serving the Lord. God, in his sovereignty, has placed that man or woman over you in authority. And if you buck up against that authority, Paul says, you're actually bucking up against the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus put that person there for your good. And when you obey and when you serve that employer, that boss, you actually are serving and you're obeying uh, Jesus Christ. And that service is to be rendered with a single-hearted devotion. Okay, that, that idea of sincerity means it is my single-hearted goal and devotion to obey you and to serve you well in this capacity as your employee. 
I remember when I was a teenager, I had a boss one time. I worked at a fast food restaurant, and I had a boss uh, one time who was one of those power-hungry uh, bosses, if you've ever had a, a boss like that. Um, she really loved to exercise her authority and really wanted to let you know she was boss. And every night uh, when I had to close at the restaurant, the last task for the night was to mop all of the dining room floor. And so you'd go around, you'd pick up all the chairs, place them up on the table, go in the back, make hot, soapy water. And I would come out and I would mop the whole dining room. And I would try the best I could uh, to mop into every corner and mop into every crack and so on and so forth. Um, And then I would go in uh, after completing that and I would ask my boss, can I leave now? And it never failed. Without even looking at the dining room, she would say, go mop it again. Every single time, go mop it again. Why? Because she was the boss, and she had the authority, and so she would tell me. And so the second time out there, I had to mop it and just go like this. And I didn't really care, and there's water splashing everywhere, because it didn't make any difference. She's not going to look at it anyway, right? And so I would just go slap it around, angry, bitter words, kind of mumbling out of my mouth. At that point, I was no longer serving Christ well. I was serving myself because I just wanted to leave. I just wanted to get out of that place. I didn't like this woman, and I just wanted to go. She would never, we lived in a small town. She would never tell us where she lived um, because she would hear us joking that we were going to egg her house or let the air out of her tires. And one night, a buddy of mine and I followed her home with our lights out and waited until she had the key in her front door and we jumped out of our car and we said, <laughs> now we know where you live, right? No wonder she didn't like us. I mean, <laughs> that was 30 years ago, by the way. Don't do that now. and You'll go to jail for stalking somebody now. I remember one time while working there, I was convicted by this verse. I was convicted that my attitude toward that boss was not very good. I repented for my attitude and I pledged in my heart that I would work really hard to obey this verse and to obey her uh, with sincerity and with reverence. And I consciously remember going to work, reminding myself, Sean, ultimately you work for Christ. Yes, she's going to go tell you to mop the dining room floor again. But remember, you're mopping it for Christ. You're not mopping it for her. And so I did what she asked. And do you know that over time, our relationship started to change? She began treating me with more kindness, and I began having more respect for her to the point where I actually became Uh, to the place where I enjoyed working for her. I enjoyed going to work and seeing that she was on the schedule. Years later, long after I worked there, we would cross paths and we could have conversations back and forth. And just this past June, we were back up in Indiana and our paths crossed at this little thrift store and we had the most pleasant conversation and I found out Uh, that she has this life-threatening disease that she's probably not going to survive. And you know, when she told me that, my heart was genuinely sad. Why? Because God had to do a work in my heart for the attitude in which I served her when she was my boss. 
We are called as Christians to serve reverentially and with sincerity. And that's what happened. Changed our relationship altogether. I'm thankful that God forgives and that he can change us from the inside out. So as employees, uh, we work reverentially. We work with sincerity. And thirdly, if you look at verse 6 again, uh, we work with consistency. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Now, I think you probably already know uh, what that means. Uh, it means that you work reverently, you work with sincerity, whether or not the boss is looking over your shoulder. Right? There's an old saying, you know it, you'll be able to finish it. When the cat's away, the mice will play. That should not be true of a Christian. We should work reverentially with sincerity and with consistency, regardless if Mr. or Mrs. Boss is looking over our shoulder. We should be giving our best effort at all times. When I was about 13 or 14 years old, uh, my uncle gave me this job at his lumber yard. And uh, probably against his better judgment, he gave me this old crew truck that I could drive around the, the lumber yard. And my job was to go around and pick up all the scraps, so uh, little two-by-fours or plywood, anything that could be burned. Um, I, I drove this old beat-up crew truck around. I would fill up the back end of the truck with all the scraps. And then I would go out in, to the burn pile, and I would burn all this this scrap lumber. Well, the burn pile, uh, you should know, was at the end of this grass airstrip. Uh, This company owned a little airplane, and so they had this little grass airstrip on the property, uh, and I would have to drive this crew truck down the airstrip, uh, down to the end and off to the side, and that's where the uh, burn pile was. Well, if you're from Indiana, you know early mornings, there's this wonderful thing called dew that is on the grass. And so I figured out I could go to one end of the airstrip, and just like an airplane, I could fly down this airstrip. And when I would get down to the end, I could hit the brakes and make that truck just sort of slide this way and that way. So that's what I started to do. So much fun. It was a blast. Down at the end of the airstrip, though, was this gigantic ditch. And I would try to see how close I could get this truck to sliding to that ditch. Um, I, thought I, was, I thought I was having a lot of fun. And I was having a lot of fun. Uh, I will just say this. You are lucky to have a pastor today because there are times when I came close, really close to the end of that airstrip. One day I got called in the office. When I got called in the office, I was unprepared for the chewing out that I received. Because what I didn't know was that even though this airstrip was out in the middle of the cornfield and the corn stalks were up, the top of that crew truck could be seen. And my boss looked out there one day and he saw this crew truck hammering about 50 miles per hour down that thing and all of a sudden went sideways and actually turned in the airstrip and he was none too happy. Uh, about my shenanigans out there. I never did that again. 
Do you know why? Because now I knew the boss could see me. He could see me over top the corn stalks. What? Right? So what is Paul trying to get us get at here? Paul says, don't wait for the boss to be watching. You do the right thing all the time, regardless of whether or not his eyes are on you. Why? Because you are a bondservant of Christ. And guess what? He's always watching. He's always watching. So don't serve to be a people pleaser. Don't, don't serve uh, just to make your boss happy, but serve to make your ultimate boss happy. Jesus Christ, you see? There's two motivations that Paul gives to his employees, and I, I think these are helpful. Uh, Paul says we need to be motivated intrinsically. That means it needs to come out of the heart. Look what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and, and not to man. When God rescued us, that is when God redeemed us, he gave us a new heart. He gave us a heart that's now bent toward him. It's, it's bent toward his purposes. And that heart recognizes that our service, again, is to the Lord, and it's meant to glorify God and not men. And so when you and I work for our employers, while we are trying to make them look good, ultimately we're trying to make Jesus Christ look good. Here's how Paul says it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy, uh, as worthy of all honor. Here's why. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Paul gives two amazing points. He says, if you claim to be a Christian and you do shoddy work for your employer, you actually bring disgrace and shame on the name of Christ. If you're one of those employees that just does the minimum and and it's obvious you're not giving it your best effort, you actually make Jesus look bad because you're there claiming to be a Christian and you're working like a pagan. That's why you often hear the reproach, if that's how Christians act, I don't want to be anything like them, right? We're called to work so that Christ doesn't become the object of disdain. We're called to work in such a way that our employer says, I wish all of my employees were Christians. Look at how they work. Look at how they go. They are the best workers. And Paul also said in that First Timothy passage, he said, if your boss is a believer, don't take advantage of that. Don't, don't say, well, he, he's a Christian. He has to show me grace. No, if your boss is a believer, you ought to be working that much harder for the guy. Because not only are you benefiting him, but ultimately you're benefiting both of you as you both work for the Lord, your master. So your obedience as a worker comes intrinsically. It comes from the heart because it recognizes I have been shown grace and love by God and now I extend that same grace and love for this boss that God has sovereignly placed over my life. But there's another motivation and I love this one in verse 8. 
there's a motivation of expectation. Look what he says in verse 8. He says, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. One day our Lord is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And here's what he promises in Matthew 16. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then what? He will repay each person according to what he has done. One commentator said it like this. He said, Nothing is unwitnessed by the Lord in heaven, and nothing done well is ever done in vain. There may be no thanks on earth. A person may reap only criticism and misunderstanding, but there is an unfailing reward for faithful service. If you go back and read in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that every work that we do on earth will be judged. It will be put through the fire. And some of those works will come through that fire like gold and silver and precious stones. Other works will go through the fire and they're going to be burnt up like wood, hay, and straw. I am convinced that there are countless deeds that Christians do that go unnoticed on earth. But one day when the Lord returns and those things go through the fire, they will come out the other side as gold, silver, and precious stones. And Jesus will say, well done. And we will celebrate in grand publicity all of those things that back here went unnoticed. Keep doing what God has called you to do from a heart that's been changed by him with a rightful expectation that one day there's a reward for that. One day that will be celebrated. Now before we end, let's at least do a quick word for those who are in authority because Paul doesn't leave those unaddressed. Um, He talks to the master in in verse 9. And to the master, he gives both a method and a motivation as well. Uh, The method that he gives is one that I call reciprocity. That is a reciprocal or a giving back relationship uh, that has been done before. So look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. Okay, well, what is the same? Well, the same is he's just called employees to love and to honor and give respect to their boss, their employer, And now he's saying, Master, you need to love your workers in the same kind of way. You need to be kind to them. You need to respect them as well. That love goes both directions. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian boss, you have been shown grace and mercy and kindness and love from your heavenly Father. And God is calling you to show those same things to those who work for you. You're to show them love and grace and kindness, uh, tenderness. Uh, Just because you're the boss doesn't give you the right to be mean and cruel. And so Paul says, stop your threatening. Uh, Quit coming along saying, well, this is just awful. I'm going to fire you if this doesn't change. Quit your threatening. Paul says, If your workers 
are profiting you, they're working for you, then you be that much more generous with them. If your workers are working for you and they're showing you Christian attitudes of reverence and sincerity and consistency, acknowledge that. Praise them for that. Don't concentrate just on the negative. Don't go after the things, all the things that they're doing wrong. Show them the things that they're doing right. What's your motivation? Why would you do that kind of a thing? Well, your motivation is found at the end of verse 9, and it says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Your motivation as a Christian boss is the impartiality of God. When God sees you, the Christian boss, and when he sees your Christian workers, he sees equals in the faith. He sees men and women of equal value, of equal worth, of equal honor. Yes, they carry different roles, but they have equal standing and and worth in the eyes of God. Remembering that as a boss will keep you from abusing or misusing those who work under you. Because one day, your heavenly Father will stand them next to you and you will be judged with impartiality. And I think you would want your Father in heaven to say, you treated your employees with respect and honor and worth because that's how I see them. And you did the same. This stuff is so practical. I I don't know how you could ever read the Bible and think that it is just some ancient book with no help for today. Uh, This stuff is immediately helpful, immediately instructional. I would love to get text messages and Facebook messages from you tomorrow morning. Take a selfie of yourself jumping out of bed with a huge smile on your face as you head off to work tomorrow. I, I, would, I would absolutely love that. But maybe you're like me and you go to work or you have been going to work and you would go moaning and groaning and complaining. My hope is that you're convicted by this passage, that you repent and you find that the grace of God can transform relationships that even now might seem very difficult. Watch him. Watch how he'll do it for you if you commit yourself to obeying him. And even if you don't see an immediate change in your boss now, know that one day Jesus is coming back. And what you do now in secret will be wide open and exposed then. Keep on, friends. Keep on. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. God, thank you for these truths this morning. Thank you for calling us to work. Uh, Help us not to see work as the enemy, as work as simply the means to get us to the weekend. But really help us to see work as part of our obligation and part of our responsibility as Christians. Help us to see work as a creation of yours. And yes, it has been marred by sin. And and yes, it is more difficult. But we can approach work with the right attitude, with the right methods, with the right mindset, 
and find that it brings glory to you when we do what you've called us to do in the right way. And that we can have relationships in the workplace that reflect your principles of worth and respect and honor and awe. God, change us from the inside out. Maybe some of us are here this morning and, and we really struggle with work. We, we have a boss that's the power-hungry boss or that's, that's mean or inconsistent or whatever the case may be. I, I pray that you would help us to go, uh, go to work and, and work with, with an attitude of reverence, with sincerity, with, with sincere uh, desire uh, to make our, our bosses look well and do our job well. Help us to be consistent show up on time to do what we're told to do uh, and, and beyond with, without worrying about whether or not the boss is watching at, at that moment or not. And I pray that in all these things, you would look good, that your name would be honored. And, and I pray that our bosses, uh, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, would say, I don't know what it is about that employee, but I want more of them that we would have the opportunity to talk about how our faith informs how we work. Father, I I pray uh, that tomorrow morning that we get up and and we head out, and and maybe we won't bounce out of bed, but uh, give give us at least a step in that direction. Help us to uh, look forward uh, to carrying out these principles. For those who own businesses, for those who are the boss man or woman in in this room this morning, I pray that you would give them a heart to to serve their employees well, to to, uh, honor and respect the hard work that's given on their behalf. And I pray that they would be generous with their employees and they uh, would note praiseworthy things in their employees. And God, that together those relationships would harmonize and they would work together to bring you glory. I love you. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.